Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang up and listen is brought to you by Ritani. Buying an engagement ring? Check out Ritani. Shop online and your ring is made in New York and sent to you or a local jeweler. It's that easy. Go to R-I-T-A-N-I dot com slash hangup today for their free diamond giveaway. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 6th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to talk about Golden State's dominating start to the NBA Finals and Cleveland's no-show in Games 1 and 2. Brian Curtis of The Ringer will join us to discuss sports writers' relationship to Muhammad Ali and the great sports writing he inspired. And The New York Times' Ben Rothenberg will be with us to assess French Open champion Novak Djokovic and whether tennis fans are warming to the best player in the game. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Feska, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. What's up, Mike? I could outdoor Stefan. Hi, Josh. <laughs> the Eeyore-ish Mike and Stefan. You know it's a bad sign when I have to bring the energy. Yeah, tigger it up. podcast. <laughs> you know, guys, we did a special podcast over the weekend. Everyone should listen to it. It was really fun. Bob Lipsight was there. He wrote the Times obituary of Ali. He covered him for 52 years. It was a really good conversation. And you all should listen to it. You can find it on the Hang Up and Listen feed in iTunes and wherever else fine podcasts are located. Yeah, we did. Yeah. I it was fun. It. I like Bob Lipsite. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, everybody's in a very weird mood today. We're going to play some of our favorite Muhammad Ali clips off of YouTube because that's really all we've been doing for the last few days is watching Ali stuff. You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this podcast and other Slate podcasts. And if you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. Get it at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
On Sunday night in Oakland, the Golden State Warriors beat the Cleveland Cavaliers 110 to 77 in game two of the finals, giving them a 2-0 series lead in a boring ass game where the Cavs were never competitive after the first quarter. The Warriors have won games one and two by a combined 48 points. So the good news, the spin here, is that Golden State lost two straight games to Oklahoma City by 52 points Mm -hmm. in the Western Conference Finals and then won the next three in a row. So as we're having this conversation about how Cleveland sucks, let's all keep in mind that the Cavs are about to take these next three games in a row. But man, Cleveland really sucks right now. (laughs) And Golden State looks good, Mike. Yeah, there's a certain illogic to say just because the Warriors can bounce back, that would seem to indicate that the Warriors are a really good team who have the ability to bounce back, which in fact buries the Cavaliers a little more. I think this was the first time a finals has gone to 0-2 in seven years or something. And uh, I think there's uh, no way the Cavaliers can come back. I'm sorry. Okay, let's say they win a game in Cleveland, but they have shown no propensity to do anything to slow down the Warriors. Not uh, even a propensity? Not a pro- not a propinquity or a propensity. <laughs> um, I, and I don't know what can do it except to have three seven-footers, seven-niners with wingspan like Oklahoma does. But it also doesn't seem like going to lay this one entirely at Tyron Lue's feet. It doesn't seem like Tyron Lue is really much of any idea besides, oh, let's go out there and shoot threes with the Warriors. Terrible idea, guy. Terrible idea. So you're saying they're not adapting particularly well to what Golden State is throwing at them. And Steve Kerr said last night that it was all about defense, that that's what won that game. Uh, The Cavaliers shot like 35%. The Warriors also had helped shot like 57% or something. Um... It didn't seem like Cleveland really had any idea how to to deal with Golden State either on offense or on defense. Maybe they should just give the ball to LeBron more. Well, we kind of forgot that Golden State was really good on defense, and they kind of forgot that they were good on defense for certain stretches of this year in this playoffs. But we did talk about it a lot last season that we were kind of underselling and underrating the fact that this was an amazing defensive team. And I think the Cavs bring the best out of the Warriors, both offensively and defensively. It's a really good matchup for them and a bad matchup for the Cavaliers. I was thinking, you know, if Oklahoma City made the finals, well, that makes Kevin Love a lot more playable because Oklahoma City has big guys. You know, he could do, you know, well enough against Steven Adams. And, you know, the the matchups sort of make more sense for the Cavaliers lineup. Like you could put Kyrie Irving on Andre Robertson or something. But this game, this series has exposed the Cavs' defensive weaknesses specifically. And it's really made me hate Kyrie Irving. Like, that guy is not someone that I am finding likable and easy to root for in this series. On offense, he um, plays a lot of one-on-one. And when it's going well, it's fun and great. And when it's not, it's just him kind of dribbling multiple seconds off the clock, oh. shaking a guy and missing a jumper. And it's, oh. it's, it's terrible. It's, then on de- defense, it's aesthetically terrible. It's strategically terrible. And don't you think, like, would he be doing this if Steph Curry weren't there? It's so clear. He's like, I could do what Steph Curry does. No, you can't. He's also doing it on a basketball court where LeBron James is standing nearby. I don't know if the problem is that they're not giving LeBron the ball enough. I think that we can talk all we want about the matchup, and I think it is a bad one for the Cavs, and they'd be losing no matter what. They're also just playing like crap. And I think that two games 
it doesn't necessarily mean that like this is the true level of both of these teams. It's probably not like that far off, but the Cavs looked amazing in the Eastern Conference playoffs. And it's not just people are like, oh, the East is weak. The East is terrible. The East was actually much better this year. And, you know, the fact that the Cavs looked so much better in the three series in the East and look so bad now, it's not just because, oh, the West is awesome and the East is terrible. I think you have to make some allowance for the fact that the Cavs have had two really bad games. Mm -hmm. And Steph Curry and Klay Thompson have not had two great games. They've been defended pretty well. I mean, last night particularly just reflects – and the first game too. I mean, Draymond Green was awesome last night. And in the first game, Sean Livingston was awesome. The depth and the versatility that the Golden State Warriors bring is very difficult for this team to contend with. And it, and But let's also talk about coaching, not just clipboard exploding coaching. You know, there were times when the Warriors were playing lineups that they had never played, or I think I heard Zach Lowe saying they had played for one minute in the regular season. It, these were good lineups. And there was a time on the floor when LeBron was the tallest player on the floor in the game yesterday. That's advantage Warriors also. Sure, when Kevin Love uh, gets hurt or has his ailment or whatever and goes out, it puts pressure on the Cavaliers. A yes, to do well. I mean, are we sure it was a concussion? I'm just saying, it okay, was a head injury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that puts pressure on the Cavaliers. But it does seem like the Warriors, for all their versatility, um, have have so many different answers and have so many different questions that are unanswerable by the Cavaliers. But again, Sean Livingston was terrible in the Thunder series. And it wasn't just because the Thunder did some awesome job of defending him. He had a lot of open mid-range shots that he biffed. And Draymond Green Mm -hmm. was awful, awful, Mm -hmm. awful. He had wide open shots all day long against the Thunder and was missing them. And then in this game, you know, the Cavs, when you're talking about Tyron Lue, they did try a bunch of different stuff. They tried a bunch of different lineups. Um, And none of it worked. But making Draymond Green prove that he can make an open three based on recent history is not a terrible coaching move given the other decisions that you have to make and who you have to defend. I would argue that given how well they've played against Curry and Thompson, that's like a smart bet that the Cavs coaches have made. And it's been well executed. And maybe that's just that Curry and Thompson have been missing more than – they have, but like J.R. Smith has only shot the ball nine times. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a guy who was draining threes in the Eastern playoffs. Like, oh. how much could the coach possibly do? We should be rooting for Cleveland to win at least a couple of games, though, because of the tsunami of of takes that are going to descend on LeBron's head for being a finals choker and a lesser superstar uh, for for making it to the seven overall finals and only having won twice. No, six. Oh, this is that's six in a row. Painful. This is six in a row, but seven overall. Oh, yeah. So 538 has a piece up arguing that LeBron is being punished by the takers because his teams have made two and a half more finals than you would have expected given the talent on the team and given their chances according to their metric BPI going into the playoffs. Um, and then as far as the finals go, the last three series, 2014, 2015, and 2016, In order, they had a 31% chance, 28% chance, and 25% chance. And then in 2007 against the Spurs, they had a 13% chance. So you wouldn't expect the LeBron teams to win that many, if any, of those series. Now, the series with the Mavericks that they lost, the first one where LeBron was with the Heat, they had a 63% chance to win that one and lost. Yeah. 
Well, I disagree with the premise. I don't know. May, who knows what the – I don't have the taker temperature. I don't know what the, uh, the average of all takers, <laughs> the uh, real clear politics poll of polls is telling me about the takers. Wouldn't it be – I'll channel my inner Stephen A. Smith and say, but if you don't make a final, you got a 0% chance. So wouldn't he be more punished if he had lost in semis or first rounds along the way? I mean we expect LeBron to win almost every year. I don't think we expected it with Cleveland last year and I don't think we expect – in fact, I don't think we ever really should have expected it with Cleveland. And he gave us two wins out of nowhere out of his, out of his bum last year. So what, you get no credit unless you win all four games? I guess not. If we're arguing against this, I would say mythical and if not mythical, stupid thing called the takers, fine, they're wrong. Six finals, if if this was another sport, if he was a six-time medalist and two-time gold medalist, we would say, I thought the Olympics were every four years. But no, we would say he's done a good job. <laughs> well, I would say that you're right that if LeBron lost earlier in the playoffs – the criticism would be just as harsh, if not harsher. It would just be different. We're just getting a different strain because the finals are the ultimate place where you display your clutchness. Um, then, you know, the argument is that LeBron comes up small in the biggest games, et cetera. Well, and it's also that measured against the other greatest players that have ever played the game – they have better records in the finals. Uh, Bill Russell, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson. Uh, the 538 piece looked at MVP winners who appeared in five-plus uh, finals, and LeBron was basically at the bottom. Um, Will Chamberlain was slightly worse, same, two out of six. Jerry West never won an MVP, but he was one and eight in the finals. And West talked about this last week and talked about how sympathetic he is to, to LeBron or empathetic. Um, and he feels for him because he's gotten to the finals, hasn't had supporting casts. And West said, you know, it's continued. Oh, he's to had supporting casts sometimes. Yeah. He's had supporting oh, casts. He's had some supporting casts. Maybe yeah. not uh, last year or in 2007, but um, that's not to say that he should have won right. all those finals. And also, we should note LeBron. LeBron sucked in game two too. He yes. had like seven turnovers. And, yeah. and wait a minute, if he doesn't have a supporting cast now, he is the GM of that team, isn't he? <laughs> and so maybe you could. Oh, say he has a good supporting <laughs> cast. It's just not as good as the Warriors. Well, the Kevin Love that they recruited from the Timberwolves would have been a good player, but now they've turned everyone into perimeter shooters. They need some length on the inside. You can't blame LeBron on everything. I mean, for instance, I think the bad job numbers, mostly LeBron's fault, but still. <laughs> this week's episode of Hang Up and Listen is supported by Ritani. Thinking of popping the question, then you should definitely check out Ritani. There is no simpler way to get the ring of her dreams. All of their rings are handcrafted in New York. Shop online and they'll ship overnight to you or to a Ritani jeweler close to you. You design a ring, they handcraft it, and you see it in the store for free. Plus, they offer no hassle returns. It is that easy. She'll love the ring, and you'll feel great about giving it to her. And this month, they're giving away a diamond. Just visit ritani.com slash hangup today for the free diamond giveaway. That's ritani.com. When you think of Muhammad Ali, the names Sonny Liston, Joe Frazier, and George Foreman come to mind. But so do Murray Kimpton and Dick Schapp and Robert Lipsight and Norman Mailer, Mark Cram, David Remnick, Joyce Carol Oates, and Gary Smith. Ali inspired more great writing and more great writers than probably any other athlete. And sometimes, though not always, he inspired those great writers to do great writing. Not all of those stories appeared on the sports page, but as Brian Curtis wrote in The Ringer this weekend, 
Muhammad Ali may be the most important figure in the history of sports writing. Grantland, Red, Jimmy, Bob, they're all ranked contenders. Ali feels like the champ. Under his tutelage, the sports page changed. Funny columnists became righteous columnists. Reactionaries became civil rights champions. And the craft became, briefly, a real beat. Joining us now by phone from Los Angeles is Brian Curtis. He's editor-at-large of The Ringer, the host of a new podcast called The Press Box. The Ringer is a new website brought to you by a young up-and-coming contender in the heavyweight division named Bill Simmons. <laughs> hey, Brian. Hey, guys. How are you? We're good. Um, and I'd like to get to some individual writers in a minute. But what's most fascinating to me, and Stefan also covers it in a piece that he wrote for Slate about Arthur Daly, the New York Times sports columnist, is that in sports writing, and I'm going to quote you, Brian, um, Ali drew a line of demarcation between them, old reactionary suspicious of loudmouth athletes, and us, young, hip, all ears. Yeah, he did. I mean, it's sort of like the moment he came on the scene, right? It wasn't something that developed. Uh, but the moment he won the heavyweight title in 1964, and probably even, as uh, Stevan points out in this piece, even before that, uh, in the, the weeks uh, in the hype leading up to the fight, he really made it so that you were either on one team or the other. And one of the things I thought was fascinating is a lot of athletes, as we know, all the way up to um, LeBron James, who's our most recent example, right, Richard Sherman, whoever it is, have drawn that line. But what Ali was able to accomplish is in, in, about, a, in about a decade or two, he was able to take everybody who used to be them and make most of them, with a couple of notable exceptions, into us, right? He was able to convert people. And people who wrote, you know, the most disparaging things about Muhammad Ali in the 60s by the 70s, you know, had kind of come around. And I say in the piece, he won kind of a moral victory on the cards, which is just amazing. It was also a confluence of a lot of things, though. It was the time, certainly. Uh, and the the culture of journalism generally. I mean, it was also the era of Tom Wolfe and the new journalism and eventually Watergate and Vietnam. And there was a lot of more incisive, politically thoughtful writing happening. And Ali came along at a time that he was able to be part of that and, and to push sports writing away from the hackneyed Grantland Rice uh, overblown purple prose uh, deification of athletes into something that was more skeptical. So on the one hand, Ali was this athlete asking to be challenged, but at the same time, he was challenging the sports writers. Absolutely. I mean, I think what's interesting, too, is the old sports page. We now live in this world, right, where when I was at Grantland, we sent a writer to cover the protests in Ferguson. You know, this was not the case for the, very, for the most part, 99% of the 1960s sports page, right? It's the structure of the thing itself, this idea. And so when you have the heavyweight champ who's talking about black Muslim theology and eventually the Vietnam War and all these kinds of things, writers have an excuse to write about those things. You know, if you'd gone to your editor and said, well, I want to write what Norman Mailer's writing in Esquire, pre-Ali, they would say, well, good luck with your Esquire job. <laughs> Get out of here. But Ali sort of brings those issues to the surface. He's the vessel by which these guys, and I, was, I love the fact that Robert Libsight, uh, after he covered the 64 fight in Miami, goes in one of his early interviews in the next couple of years is Elijah Muhammad, right, the leader of the Nation of Islam. I mean, just imagine that kind of thing on the sports page before Muhammad Ali. So I think he becomes the way we kind of smuggle all this stuff into the sports page, and we wind up having more interesting sports writing for it. 
Tell me about Mark Cram. Uh, I loved Ghosts of Manila, and I think towards uh, the end of Cram's life, it, it, there was a change. There was a whole turnaround. So it went from the uh, the establishment was against Ali to Ali having just been a number of things, but chief among them were uh, showing integrity and having been on the right side of most of these societal issues. Uh, the establishment now kowtows at the feet of Ali and writes hagiographies about him, but there are still the exceptions. So, you know, how do you classify them? Yeah, that's really, Cram is a really interesting example because you're right, we did, we did eventually move into this, this, David Plotz wrote a piece about this too around, around the turn of the century. We ran, wound up in this kind of thing where Ali had never done anything wrong. If you watch that documentary that came out a couple of years ago, The Trials of Muhammad Ali, is that the right title? He, um, and you listen to the stuff he was saying on his college campus tour in the 60s when he was kind of in exile from the establishment. He was, you know, a lot of the things he said were just completely nuts. I and mean, they were really, really nasty and terrible. And somehow a lot of that stuff got, you know, kind of, kind of taken out of the wash. And Cram, I thought, late in his life especially, was one of those guys who was able to entertain uh, both ideas. That Muhammad Ali had been this sort of world historical figure and also had been wrong and, on a number of things. Uh, and it's really funny, and I think part of that is what we're talking about, right? It's those reactionary sports writers who were so against Ali in the 60s. And by the 70s, 80s, 90s, of course, now when he's kind of his ability to speak has been taken away from him and he can, you know, he's not a public figure in the way he once was, they sort of do the bad sports writing but the opposite way. Yes, Muhammad exactly. Muhammad is, you know, this, right, this uncomplicated <laughs> hero. And in fact, he's the most complicated hero we've ever had. And Lipside talked with us on our podcast over the weekend about if you were a good liberal sports writer circa 1964, Ali was talking about separatism, you know, when he joined the Nation of Islam. And so it wasn't like um, only the reactionaries had a problem with him. You could have a problem with Muhammad Ali no matter where you fell on the political spectrum. Totally. If you were, you know, championing the civil rights movement, right? He was a rejection of that. It was a rejection of their uh, of their ideals, you know, and of their methods. There was a really funny, you know, what's also funny, and Stefan, I think, got into this a little bit, is when you read those old columns that rejected Ali, they were not typically what we would think now is just like super racist or wrongheaded, though some of them were. A lot of them were just confused because those guys had just never dealt with stuff like this before. There's this great Jim Murray story where um, Ali confronts Murray. Murray, of course, is the longtime columnist of the Los Angeles Times and says, you use the phrase muzzle the Muslim in your column about me. And I didn't like it. And Murray says, no, I didn't. And he says, no, you can't prove that I did that. And Ali says, he says, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. So the next time he sees Muhammad Ali, Ali is lying in bed. I think it's after a training session. And he reaches under the covers and pulls out this like yellowing clipping that includes the words muzzle the Muslim. And Murray paid him off, you know, paid him a hundred bucks. And Ali sent it back and writes this long letter. And it was almost like an editor writing to his sports writer and saying, you know, these words you use in this column, you're, you're, you're doing comedy and you're kind of pleasing your readers, but these really hurt. And these are, you know, sports writing is not just clowning around this. There are people like me who really listen to this stuff and, you know, and who are affected by it. And it was kind of gently chiding. And that to me is Ali kind of as our national sports editor, right? I mean, he really was sort of bending the trajectory of sports writing. I mean, can you think of an athlete who challenged the press in that way before Ali? I certainly can't. I mean, the athletes were typically rude to reporters or they were fawning to reporters, but anything that was mildly inflammatory or interesting just didn't make their stories. 
And now Ali was giving them freedom to go ahead, print all of this, say it, because I'm going to challenge you back if you get it wrong. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, certainly Jackie Robinson would be in the, in the, same, in the same tier, right? Mm-hmm. So not nearly challenging them quite as much. But, you know, Jackie was also a complicated guy and also could be, you know, not, not saying the things, you know, as, Lee, as Lee famously says, not being the guy you want me to be, right, a lot of the time. So he'd be the only one, and I think, you know, you'd probably go back and find guys like maybe Joe Lewis just, mm-hmm. you know, for, for being the black heavyweight champion of the world, right? Challenges a lot of sports writers. Yeah, but Branch view. Rickey explicitly told Jackie Robinson and selected Jackie Robinson because he wasn't going to be confrontational, because he had to rein it in, because he couldn't say what he wanted to say. Ali said whatever the hell he wanted to say. Well, I think Ted Williams, someone like that, is a guy who brawled with the press, but there was really no bigger issue than, I mean, I guess you could try to make the case that Williams was carving a spot out for a little bit of dignity and respect and, you know, things like leave my family and parentage and things like that out of it. But, but it, yeah, it's, it's not applicable. The broader question that they were brawling over wasn't bigger than the sport, wasn't even bigger than the Red Sox. Yeah, it's sort of like if, if anything, it was the dignity of the athlete, right? Yeah. Against the writer, that the, the athlete had some kind of power that wasn't completely dictated by the sports writers and what they wrote every day. Well, the other thing that that touches on, and that your column does, and all these uh, um, all these appreciations and investigations into how it was covered at the time, this always happens. But my God, the athlete or the person, the man in the arena, whoever it is, they live on and no one even remembers the sports writer. Like we know that there is this institution called the press and students of sports writing know who Red Smith was and we consider him fondly and know who Dick Young was and consider him ill. But no one no one knows Dick Young's name anymore except those who were of his age or people like us who choose to go out and figure out who Dick Young was. It is, I don't know. And we even, even Howard Cosell, I remember when Howard Cosell died and it seemed like he was the, a, a giant, a colossus, the biggest guy on earth. And when he died, there were a couple of obits, but man, did he fade into obscurity. And I kind of wonder what that tells us. I mean, I wonder if it's just that the institutions are bigger than the people. I wonder if it's that, you know, because we're in the press, we tend to make too much of the press, but the athlete can transcend all of that. No, absolutely. I th- and I think that's great. And, and it actually shows you part of what Ali pays back to the writers, right, which is giving them great quotes, giving them tons of attention, allowing them to get book deals right, that they never would have gotten, allowing somebody like Howard Cosell to attain this crazy national prominence that he certainly never would have on that scale without Muhammad Ali. You know, he pays us, the sports writers, back. You know, he allows us to attain a level of celebrity and notability that we never would have. You know, because we attach ourselves to him. I mean, just how many Ali books have come out in our lifetime, which has mostly been in a a period where Ali could no longer really speak Mm -hmm. uh, or do anything on a national scale? So, yeah, I think, and I think that's part of it, too. I mean, that's with any writer, I mean, any great athlete, right, is that, you know, they're giving us a great gift, which is not only, you know, great columns and things, but we are, we are, you know, some of their celebrity is sloughing off onto us. And, and I think that more than anything, you know, probably is a lot of the reason Muhammad Ali. I mean, look at all these old sports writers like Lipside and Jerry Eisenberg or the Newark Star-Ledger who are getting obits this week, right? That's a, you know, it's their bow, too, because you know they owe so, so much to him, and he did so much for them uh, that in a way that the obituary kind of becomes part of the payback. So we've talked a lot about the subject matter and kind of the content, but let's talk about the artistry here and the, the prose. 
the most famous piece written about Ali, I think, is Mark Cram's story in Sports Illustrated about the Thrilla in Manila, the headline being, Lottie, Lottie, he's great. And the lead is, the first sentence, it was only a moment sliding past the eyes like the sudden shifting of light and shadow, but long years from now, it will remain a pure and moving glimpse of hard reality. And if Muhammad Ali could have turned his eyes upon himself, what first and final truth would he have seen? And I must confess that this is not to my taste. Like, it's not the kind of writing that I like, and it's not uh, the kind of writing that I aspire to do myself. And I'm curious what you guys think, or if you guys have a favorite piece about Ali and sort of thoughts on why he he inspired this kind of florid prose. Well, I do like Cram, and I do think that that sort of sports writing – uh, Red Smith does it too. I mean, it's from a different time and when done poorly, I guess you would say it's purply and done poorly. But there's something about boxing and horse racing, those two sports alone, that I think allow for the grandiosity. I don't. I think if you try that stuff with baseball, I mean, maybe because baseball is whimsical. And if you try that stuff with football, because football is, you know, there, you know that no one involved in it would think of themselves and so exalted. Well, maybe exalted is not the word, but would think of would maybe even be able to conjure up the phrases. But there's something so fundamental and elemental and old, old, old time about those sports that I think it pairs well with those words. And I think Cram is great at it. And I think Ghosts of Manila. I don't. I mean, it's a it's a challenging book sometimes on a sentence by sentence structure, and I really don't know that it reflects the reality. If I was next to Mark Cram that whole time, I don't think I would say, "Oh yeah, those are the impressions I got." That filter seems right to me, but there's something about it that I respond to actually, specifically Cram and Ali. Yeah, it's another credit I think to Muhammad Ali too that he could he could almost make that stuff seem like, you know, worthwhile, right? That kind of sports writing. I, mean, I think we when, when we see that today or even even if you read some pieces back then or that are about uh lesser athletes or less interesting athletes, it just seems so ridiculous, right? That kind of prose. And I even look at some of the mailer stuff that he wrote and some of it is just unreadable. But it's Muhammad Ali, so you just kind of make an effort to read it, right? And you think, well, you know, he was this huge guy and maybe that's where you reach <laughs> reach as deep as you can for the for that kind of language and metaphor and try to try to capture him because you're trying to do him justice. The piece that I saw um, that I hadn't read before that Tommy Craggs, our colleague, put me onto that I thought was the best was the Murray Kempton story in the New Republic about the Ali Liston fight from March of 64, headline The Champ and the Chump. And the excerpt that we printed on Slate, I'll read it now. Just before the bell for the seventh round, Cassius Clay got up to go about his job. Suddenly, he thrust his arm straight up in the air in the signal with which boxers are accustomed to treat victory, and you laughed at his arrogance. No man could have seen Clay that morning at the weigh-in and believed that he could stay on his feet three minutes that night. He had come in pounding the cane Malcolm X had given him for spiritual support, chanting, I am the greatest, I am the champ, he is a chump. Ray Robinson, that picture of Grace, who is Clay's ideal as a fighter, pushed him against the wall and tried to calm him. And this hysterical child turned and shouted at him, I am a great performer. I am a great performer. Suddenly, almost everyone in the room hated Cassius Clay. Sonny Liston just looked at him. Liston used to be a hoodlum. Now he was our cop. Mm -hmm. He was the big Negro we pay to keep sassy Negroes in line. And he was just waiting until his boss told him it was time to throw this kid out. (laughs) I love that. It's 
it's wonderful, right? And another part of Ali's sports writing legacy we're just touching on too is that is he is him bringing celebrity sports writers into his orbit, right? You know, somebody like Kempton at that point or later and Mailer and Plimpton, all those guys are on, you know, really just that's where the story is, you know, as much as it is the civil rights movement or, you know, the 1968 Democratic Convention and other things that they converge on because that's where, you know, so he sort of brings those guys in. Joyce Carol Oates is on the op-ed page in the New York Times today because he dignifies, you know, he, he offers them a subject that's as interesting, right, as literature or fiction that they can, you know, come in and write that kind of stuff about and again, it was a time when when there was a hunger for for literary writing about sports in Esquire, um, in the New Republic, and other places. Um, there was a there was there was there was an opportunity for these literary lights to to slum it. I mean, Plimpton had been doing it since the fifties with his first person stuff, um, but Ali, and I think it was also part of Ali's willingness to be part of the spectacle. Not in, I think, any cell in a in an entirely self serving way, but partly out of social conscience to to try to 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 change things and and getting these writers on board helped to do that. Yeah, maybe ninety five percent self serving and yeah. all, but but the social conscience <laughs> comes with it. You know? well, I think the social conscience I mean, was an outgrowth of it. I think uh, Josh looked, and I were just sure. talking about this before the show that a lot of what what Ali said, at least in the in the early years in sixty three, sixty four, sixty five, sixty six wasn't premeditated. It was spontaneous and then it coalesced into a kind of political theory or political uh, philosophy. Yeah, I mean, one of the funny things too that we've kind of, you know, glossed over over the years is his press conferences and interviews could be just totally boring and interminable. <laughs> you know, he'd yeah. do an hour on Muslim theology and then 20 minutes on this and then another hour, and, you know, and people are just peeling away begin <laughs> all the all the you know i'm i'm so bad i make medicine sick is the stuff we remember but he could just go on and on and on and well, on lipside tells that story uh about ali uttering one of his great lines when he's when he when he gets his uh notice that he's got a report for induction into the army and he's talking about muslim theology and he's being self-serving and he's wondering why he's getting drafted and the old guys leave to go file their stories, you know, and, or go to the track. And eventually Ali says, you know, I, I got no problem with them Viet Cong. Um, and it becomes <laughs> his signature line. But you had to stick around to find it. Absolutely. Tom Callahan, who used to write for Time and other places, told that great story where he said, that, you know, you'd be interviewing Muhammad Ali on the phone and you'd be close to deadline. You just had to get him off and he wouldn't get off the phone. And so you just hand the phone to your wife and let him talk to your wife. You'd go back to the other room and write your story and you'd come back in and he was still talking to your wife. You know, and when he'd see you down the road, he'd say, I like, I like her better than you. Last thought, and I'm curious what you think about this, Mike. It's easy for us to sit here today and say, oh, we would have been us and not them. But sitting here in this chair today now, like, what are we screwing up? Like, what are the things that people will look back on? And the one that came to my mind was there are a lot of people on the sports page writing about sports and domestic violence where you feel like the training that that we've gotten or that, you know, certain people have gotten on the sports page is not equip you to write about Ray Rice and Greg Hardy. And sometimes people rise to the occasion and do great journalism, and sometimes people don't. Well, it's so funny that you talk about domestic violence because there um, on Meet the Press and in a lot of other places was Jim Brown talking about Muhammad Ali. It seems to me that 
it, it's something that we uh, still grapple with, certainly. I think the flaw would be to say, well, what did we get wrong with Muhammad Ali? We were too conservative, essentially. As sports writers, we were too establishment, too conservative in all senses of the word, less prone to adopt someone with a brash, outsized personality. So our similar flaws will be in that direction. But think about the other things that he represented, which was just kind of the incursion of society into the sports pages, into a, you know, keep this out of here. This is uh, not what I turn to sports talk radio or the sports pages for. And so maybe maybe that should be be the lesson that when there's uh, something in sports that's telling us something about society, run to it, not away from it. And I think Ali helped that happen in other areas. I mean, the the sports press didn't cover the business of sports until effectively the, the you know until baseball struck, until Marvin Miller, and even then in the seventies, they didn't do a particularly good job at it. Um, and now it's a uh, indispensable part of sports coverage. So I think the the change comes from without. And then it forces the sports page to, to, to make, to adapt. Yeah, I think an interesting difference, too, is that, you know, sports writing in those days was very much minus SI and, and a couple of national concerns, very much a local, diffuse kind of thing, right? It wasn't easy to access what everyone else is saying. And now we live in this time of Twitter where when we see a social justice issue before us, there's an enormous amount of pressure and organizing, I guess is the word for it, to to come down on the right side or to come down on a particular side. And I think with, to Josh's question of what are we going to miss, I think what we'll miss is when the Twitter and the world and people who very, feel very keenly and genuinely about these issues pull us in one direction and we go along with them. And probably, you know, probably even perhaps even a, you know, a pro-civil rights liberal direction. And we look back and realize we miss the story. And and that we you know and that we really got it wrong or we got a particular athlete wrong. To me, that's the way it's going to go now. Not that you know we're all writing for our papers in St. Louis and Chicago and we're not as hip as we need to be, but that we're almost too hip and we and we somehow screw it up. Brian Curtis is editor at Large of the Ringer, the host of a new podcast called The Press Box. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, guys. On Sunday in Paris, Novak Djokovic beat Andy Murray in four sets to win his first French Open title. Djokovic has now won all four of tennis's major titles consecutively, making him the first man to hold all four trophies since Rod Laver did it in 1969. Of course, Serena Williams does it seemingly every other year. Uh, the 29-year-old Djokovic now has 12 majors overall, just two fewer than Rafael Nadal and five fewer than the record holder, Roger Federer. Despite all this success, Djokovic has never been a huge crowd favorite outside of his native Serbia. But that seemed to change on Sunday with the Roland Garros crowd chanting his nickname, Nole, 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 throughout the match. Joining us now from Paris to talk about Djokovic's dominance and his new role as tennis's fan favorite is Ben Rothenberg, who writes about tennis for the New York Times and is one of the hosts of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Djokovic is feeling well. And... He is a guy who has tried throughout his career, I would say, to get people to like him. He does, like, funny impressions of other players. He, like, raises his arms to the crowd. He really plays to the crowd. And it must have been galling for him that nobody ever seemed to love him, that especially when he was playing against Federer, but even against Nadal and Murray, the other members of the Big Four, he was never 
the neutral fans' choice. And that really did seem to change on Sunday. It did seem to change. Part of it was there just seemed to be a lot more Serbians who drove in for the occasion. So (laughs) whether he was just popular in Serbia and Serbia moved itself (laughs) to Paris for the day uh, was a factor. And that nole, nole, nole chant you were doing so so melodically before kept going for like three hours after the match, actually. They stayed on the grounds. They had nowhere else to go, I guess, these Serbians and kept chanting that same one line of chanting they could have used some extra verses or something but they were still going you could hear it like raining into or spilling into andy murray's press conference later which was sort of awkward you know an hour later for them still to be no laying over poor murray uh (laughs) but yeah he he always has tried very hard to be liked and i think people like in any sort of walk of life can find that off-putting which is tough because why why you blame a guy for trying to be likable and so many people make no effort and here's this guy really wanting to be liked and not getting anywhere. He was doing this thing after every match, or at least the last few matches in Paris, where he would have a ball kid, like he would be joined by ball kids who would sort of raise their hands to each side of the stadium, and it was very awkward and drew a lot of eye rolls in the uh, media rooms of the tournament. But he, he's making an effort, so I don't think he can knock somebody for for trying to whine to be popular. He's won the last four Grand Slams. He's won six of the last eight. Federer and Nadal have been marginalized. And Djokovic's problem for all these years has been that he was a hair younger than both Federer and Nadal, and he he didn't achieve as much at an early age as they did. He was he lagged behind in terms of winning slams. So how much of, of this he's not liked is really just the a factor of he's not one of them. And they were liked, and he was the third wheel. No, exactly right. I mean, these were in a Federer-Nadal era when those two had their rivalry be the dominant uh, magnetic force in men's tennis. Djokovic was a third-party candidate who nobody needed because the two reasonable candidates were so likable and the other two guys atop the game. Um, and so Djokovic didn't have a lot of space. Like you said before, Josh, it, it was Serbians who liked Djokovic. The demographics generally just tended to be Djokovic's fans were Serbian and that was it. And they were there and loud. But didn't go much beyond that. And so I think that's in terms of the popularity factors, that's absolutely right. The US Open final last year against Federer, like literally like 98% of the crowd was loudly for Federer in that match. Mm-hmm. And what should have been, in theory, a neutral venue match. I'd never really heard anything like it. Just the disparity uh, for one player over another when neither of the players was from anywhere near New York. You know, a uh, so a career Grand Slam was won at the French Open. But I do not speak of Djokovic. I didn't realize Martina Hingis is, uh, she's, she's crushing the field in mixed doubles. When did she come back? Yeah, Martina Hingis came back in doubles, and uh, I guess in 2013, she came back right after her Hall of Fame induction. <laughs> she has been waiting to, you know, be retired for five or six years, whatever the cutoff is. And then literally within a month of getting inducted, she went back on tour and started playing. Uh, didn't go that well the first year, but then she paired up with uh, Sonia Mirza and Flavia Panetta, both of whom were better players than her initial partner. And she's been winning Grand Slams well in women's doubles, which is considered a much tougher discipline than mix in terms of getting all the best players or more of the best players entering. She's number one in WTA doubles right now. So, yeah, she completed her uh, mixed doubles Grand Slam with Leander Pace. Both of them had never won the uh, French Open before, so they won the mixed there. And Martina Hingis now has won 11 out of the 12 Grand Slam titles available to her, uh, assuming she stays a woman, uh, (laughs) just having not won the French Open women's singles. So she's doing pretty well for herself. And she's younger still than Venus Williams. 
Does she enter? Does she time. enter in the singles draws? No, she has not played yeah. singles. It's just once. I think she played Fed Cup uh, when Switzerland didn't have any other options, but she did not do too well and has not tried that again. It would be cool if there was that option in other sports because so often great athletes retire, not because they can't do it once a week or do it whatever their sport is in some situations. It's just, you know, like Steve Nash talked about, I can't do it 82 games or a pitcher. Yeah, I could give you a, you know five good games at some point. I just can't do it all the time. It would be nice to have this option, like just little tweaks on the system to let great players, you know, be great on a slightly different way. No, for sure. And it's happened before in tennis. Uh, Martina Navratilova, who Martina Hingis was named after um, back in the 80s at some point, uh, when she was in her 40s, she kept playing doubles and mixed doubles uh, pretty well. She won a Grand Slam in her 40s and mixed doubles at the U.S. Open, I want to say in 06 or so. And so that's been an option in tennis that isn't at their other sports. A lot of top single stars, because of egos or just exhaustion with a tour, whatever, don't take that path of easing into a doubles career. But it's, it's there for whoever wants it. Poor Novak Djokovic. Try to do a segment about him and end up talking about <laughs> Flavia Panetta. Um, so Carl Bialik has a lot of great stats about Djokovic's dominance. And according to ELO ratings, which are an objective way to assess performance across eras, Djokovic is the highest of any player ever in the open era. And, you know, we think of Federer when he won six out of seven slams sort of before Nadal came on the scene. We think of that, or at least I think of that, as kind of the peak of male tennis performance, at least that I can remember. And now, at least according to the numbers, Djokovic is better than that. No, that's completely right. And what Djokovic really has that Federer didn't have before him is that he plays a pretty full schedule and wins just about everything. I mean, he's playing all these Masters events and racking up those titles as well. I think he's won six or seven of the last nine Masters events. He's won eight out of the nine in his career, and nobody's won all nine of them. So he's a chance to create another complete set of history for a first time in Cincinnati uh, in August. Not that that's quite the same level of tournament as Roland Garros, but it's another <laughs> opportunity for him to uh, exact complete dominance over the sport as well. And yeah, and he's coming in a time when nobody else, with the exception of Murray, I guess, seems to be really completely at the top of their game in terms of the great players. The other thing that Bialik wrote about is that there's this lost generation of yes. players. So the ones that are younger than Murray and older than Dominic Team and Nick Kyrgios, guys like Chilich and Del Potro, those are the only ones that have won majors. But that generation is just awful. Like they that's, have done yeah, absolutely nothing. That's completely right. Men's and women's a little bit, but mostly men's. Like people who were born between 89 and 93, it's less charitably called generation suck sometimes. I mean, this <laughs> this generation just never showed up in the sport and was never contending for Grand Slams. And there's been... A, a, a few names in there. The top names in that generation are guys like Milos Ronic, Kanye Shikori, uh, Grigor Dimitrov, and those, all of them. Uh, Ronic, I guess, is still sort of considered maybe a threat to get a couple majors someday. Nishikori's leveling off a bit, and Dimitrov's really not lived up to his hype that he got early in his career. Uh, those, so there, there's a definite gap there, for sure. And people are now looking ahead to these younger guys, the ones in their younger 20s, like Dominic Team, like Nick Kyrgios, to be the ones to pick up the pace. Right. But it certainly and, has helped this older generation, including Djokovic, who's now 29, stay on top. Because of those right. Masters tournaments I was mentioning, nobody younger than Djokovic has won a Masters title yet. And he's 29, which is not young. So that's pretty, pretty shocking. And what this means is that Djokovic is hitting 30 at a time when his only real competition at the very top is Andy Murray, who is also 29 years old. Sampras and Federer only won one major each after 30. 
seems like Djokovic is going to have a lot more opportunity to win majors in the next five years. And since we didn't mention it already, we should note that Federer didn't play the French Open, which was, I think, the first main draw of a slam mm-hmm. he hadn't played since like the 90s. Is that yeah, right, Ben? Yeah, he lost in qualifying of the 1999 U.S. Open. So this century, he hadn't uh, missed a main draw. It was 65 and, main draws in a row for Federer. And Nadal, who I believe has only lost twice ever at the French Open, pulled out with a wrist injury. Yeah, yeah, and it all pulled out after the second round too, right? So this path, not that there should be any asterisks on what Djokovic achieved here. No. He's been beating all these guys silly regardless. But those two people were not in the draw, and that makes the draws look a lot more open. And yeah, like you said, that's completely right. Uh, right now, Djokovic's biggest rivals are older than him, and he's nearly 30. And so that seems to speak well for his possibilities of longevity and racking up a few more Grand Slam titles before this next generation uh, reaches and, it's and, matured. And Pete Sampras has how many for the record? 14. It's tied 14. With yeah. Right. It seems that this year the phrase clay court specialist did not come into play that much. And I wonder how much is that just a function of Nadal not being there? You, the great thing, a great thing about tennis is, you know, the different surfaces allowed for different players to pop at different times and also, you know, represented to some great players. Heretofore, Djokovic couldn't or didn't win at the French and the surface was certainly a consideration. What is his winning now? That we overrated it? That without Nadal, there's no such thing as someone who, you know, is the true clay court specialist, such that his specialty is better than just the great player overall. How do you view the idea of the clay court specialist? Yeah, I think that term has pretty much gone by the wayside in this generation, just because the top players have all been good on everything. Andy Murray, I guess, was the slowest one to sort of get his clay feet under him. But in the last couple years, he's been able to compete on clay just as well as anything else and made the French Open final for the first time. And Djokovic and Federer, each of whom you know, the French Open was the last, uh, you know, checkmark left blank for them for quite a while. We're both great clay court players that are winning these Masters tournaments on clay. It was, they didn't have clay court problems. They just had Nadal problems. And now that Nadal got out of the way for each of them in these tournaments, they were able to win it. Uh, Djokovic does have the fact that he beat Nadal last year at the French Open, heads up, and then went on to lose the final after being pretty exhausted against Tan Wawrinka. Uh, but for Federer and Djokovic, when they finally did win the tournaments, they just didn't have to play at all. Get his clay feet under him, by the way. I like that phrase. It does, <laughs> yeah. it does show that he has feet of clay, not being yeah. able to get one's clay feet under them. Last uh, thought for me is that there was a butterfly effect uh, moment in this tournament where Djokovic threw his racket probably accidentally during the quarterfinals against Tomas Burdich, and the Lions person ducked out of the way, showing amazing reflexes. But if the racket had hit the lines person, Ben, don't you think that they would have defaulted him and we would be having an entirely different conversation about Djokovic right now? It was very, very close. Djokovic was definitely very, very lucky that the lines person was able to move. If it had grazed them, it depends on what the hit had been. Like if it had hit them in the on the chin and drawn blood, then I think absolutely Djokovic would what have been gone. And that's sort of yeah, and that's sort of where it was where it was coming. Um, but they got out of the way completely, and Djokovic should be eternally grateful for that. Yeah, but it, it should have been, by the, the, the rule of the rule book, uh, automatic default. It would be tough to see. I'm guessing they would try to find ways out of it. He was well up in that match. He was, you know, favored to win the tournament. So it would have been a huge story. And we've seen, I know, you know, Josh, you wrote on Slate about Darian King and things like that, other close calls in these situations uh, who have gotten less leeway and less ninja-like reflexes from line judges (laughs) in uh, other smaller, lower-stakes events. 
Yeah, in that case, the lines person like took the charge. Like she went down like she'd been shot. Like she really wanted was, to sell the call. And she didn't even get hit. I think she was just like scared <laughs> by the noise of the racket hitting the, the backdrop. And yeah, like you said, just collapsed to the ground in hysterics. And luckily for Djokovic, that woman was not on court Philippe Chatrier. All right, Ben Rothenberg writes about tennis for the New York Times, and he's one of the hosts of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Josh. Now it is time for After Balls, and there's a lot of la- great language around Muhammad Ali and a lot of great language around his opponents. My favorite Ali opponent name is Zora Fali. I remember Zora Fali, <laughs> and thanks for listening. Uh, Stefan, who do you like? You like Chuck Wepner. I like Joe Bugner. Joe Bugner? What do we know about Joe Bugner? Hungarian-born, British-Australian former heavyweight yeah. boxer and actor. When Ali fought Bugner, he was wearing Elvis Presley's robe. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Well, Trevor Burbick's always been a favorite of mine. But you know who my favorite was, Josh? You're setting me up, aren't you? <laughs> I, like, I like a guy by the name of Brian London. <laughs> you might not remember Brian London, but you might remember him by his nickname, The Blackpool Tower. <laughs> I'll read you a little bit about Brian London. London, known as the Blackpool Tower, was a mediocre boxer who was beaten by Cooper three times before he fought Ali. Ingemar Johansson said that London would have struggled to beat his sister. Wow. I'm looking at the Wikipedia list, and there's also Al Gould's Terror Jones. Ooh. That's a good one. He puts the terror in Gould's, yeah. This is my favorite one of all time. You ready? Yeah. Sonny Policeman Moore. That just tickles me. Was he a policeman? (laughs) Possibly. Remember, athletes needed day jobs. Yep. All right. So what what are we going with, Mike? Blackpool Tower. Tower. Yeah. Blackpool Tower. All right. Mike, what is your Blackpool Tower? No, Stefan. Sonny Policeman Moore was not a policeman, but Tunny Hunsaker, Muhammad Ali's first opponent, was. In fact, he was the chief of police of Fayetteville, West Virginia. So today I will just have a list of Muhammad Ali fun facts and then a recommendation. And my funnest of fun facts is that of Muhammad Ali's first three opponents, one was a chief of police and two were murderers. They included Herb Seiler, who was convicted of manslaughter and served a seven-year prison sentence. And then Tony Esperti, nicknamed Big Tony, got in with the mob down there in Florida and allegedly gunned down Thomas the Enforcer Altamura. 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 According to newspaper reports, Altamura was waiting to be seated at the restaurant when Esperti allegedly walked up and shot him to death. You know, I should say two of his three opponents were allegedly murderers and one was allegedly a chief of police. Another fascinating thing, just going through all his fights, because I don't know, we probably think of 1960, the Olympics, and then cut right to Sonny Liston, right? Or cut right to... uh, Yeah, cut right to Sonny Liston. But along the way, there were some interesting fights, including, and I thought this was quite interesting, in 1963, he fought Doug Jones, and it was the fight of the year by Ring Magazine in 1963. This was Ali's 18th fight. And here's a fascinating fact. This was the first Madison Square Garden sellout since Rocky Marciano fought Joe Lewis in 1951. Madison Square Garden did not sell out for 12 years? That seems unfathomable. Sports were very different then. 
The last thing about Muhammad Ali that I want to point out is of all his unanimous decisions, his greatest one, which we sometimes tend to overlook, was Clay v. United States. And this is where he appealed his conviction for refusing induction, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And he won eight to zero, and that was without Thurgood Marshall, who had recused himself to vote. And reading from what the court wrote about it, they just really tore into the government's case in a big way. And they said that the court shows that Ali's beliefs are founded on tenets of the Muslim religion as he understands them. Done. And because of that, because of that horrible injustice, he did not fight for three years. And this was an injustice just enforced by the boxing poobahs who got it so wrong that the Supreme Court, yes, the Marshall Court, but without Marshall, you not unanimously said that the government got it wrong and the boxing authorities didn't have to do it, but they decided to suspend him for all those years or not, uh, not sanction him to fight. And I did promise you a fun recommendation. The Clickhole has an oral history of the 1998 Major League Baseball home run chase. It includes Bud Selig jumping out from behind the bush to name a random person the manager of the Chicago Cubs. It includes Sammy Sosa growing up in the Dominican with a beautiful pet peacock whose name was Judas Iscariot, the bird. It has to do with the winner of Bud Selig's You're Now Manager of the Chicago Cub being Martin Scorsese. It's good. It's really good. <laughs> good click call. Stefan, what is your Blackpool Tower? I'm going to take a second stab at an afterball I did six years ago about Muhammad Ali. I have this T-shirt, the front of which says, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. It is, of course, one of Ali's most famous utterances, a quote that would help to define him, his refusal to be inducted into the military, his banishment from boxing during his prime, his opposition to the war in Vietnam, and broadly speaking, the entire decade of the 1960s. Ali spoke the line, or the line that would become the line, on February 17, 1966. He was outside of his home in Miami, where he was training for a fight, and he was ogling high school girls on their way home from school. Ali's bodyguards, Nation of Islam members, reporters were all there too. Ali then got a phone call from a reporter who told him that the draft board in Louisville, his hometown, had reclassified him from 1Y, or unfit for military service, to 1A, immediately eligible to be drafted. According to Robert Lipsight, who was there that day working on a feature for the New York Times about Ali, his first response was less political than selfish. Why me, Ali said, according to Lipsight in his 1975 book, Sports World. I can't understand it. How did they do this to me, the heavyweight champion of the world? Reporters then started arriving in waves. Neighbors and passersby stopped there, too. They all asked him questions for hours. And finally, one of the reporters said, well, what do you think about the Viet Cong? Ali was tired, and he replied, I ain't got nothing against them Viet Cong. He would repeat the phrase, and eventually it would harden into, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Now, I had always assumed that Ali followed up immediately with the other line that would become the companion in the quotation, one that was repeated in obituaries over the weekend, no Viet Cong ever called me nigger. But Lipsight didn't record that follow-up line. It doesn't appear that other reporters at the time did either. And that's because Ali, in all likelihood, never said it. Someone did, though, or at least someone thought of it around the same time. A week after Ali's comments in Miami, the New York Times reported on an anti-war protest near where President Lyndon Johnson was speaking. One Negro demonstrator carried a sign that said, the Viet Cong never called me nigger, the paper wrote. 
at a civil rights march in Tougaloo, Mississippi that June. Quote, a man from Brooklyn wore a hand-lettered placard. No Viet Cong ever called me nigger. That was in the New Statesman. In Chicago that July, the Times reported, quote, a teenage girl wore a button pinned to her flowered blouse that said, the Viet Cong never called me nigger. But none of those examples, and there were other ones too, attributed or connected the phrase to Ali. He did say something along those lines in a 1970 interview with the journal Black Scholar, and also in this undated interview that was included in a 1980 profile of Ali on the African-American-focused television program, Like It Is. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America and shoot them for what? They never call me nigger. They never lynch me. They never put no dogs on me. They never rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. What am I going to shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. It's possible that Ali at some point said the two phrases back to back. He talked a lot after all. And even that he did that before the second one started showing up as a slogan at anti-war rallies. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that he did or even that he ever said, no Viet Cong ever called me nigger or something pithily close to that. Does it matter? Not really. What does is that Ali recognized the growing power of his off-the-cuff words and then used them to define his own political character, which in turn was embraced by others and remains with us today. Josh, what's your Blackpool Tower? So I was uh, very excited about a little uh, part of Stefan's uh, piece on Arthur Daly that appeared on Slate. And that part was that before his bout with uh, Doug Jones. Which Mike mentioned. Mike. Yeah. um, Clay won a poetry reading at the Bitter End in Greenwich Village with a 36-line ode. That poem read in part, Marcellus vanquished Carthage. Cassius laid Julius Caesar low, and Clay will flatten Doug Jones with a mightily muffled blow. The then Cassius Clay's middle name was Marcellus. Uh, at the coffee house, he also repeatedly proclaimed, I'm the greatest. So let's uh, get a, some more details on that Muhammad Ali coffee house appearance. Um, there's a description of it in David Remnick's book, King of the World where Remnick writes that Clay went on every television show that asked him, but his cleverest stroke was an appearance at the Bitter End, an outpost of Greenwich Village hip for folk singers, comedians, and other performers of the zeitgeist. The occasion was poetry night, and Clay appeared on stage with six women and another man. Though it was obvious that he was the reason for the occasion, Robert Lowell, much less Allen Ginsberg, was not in the competition. The fix was in. The first poet was a bearded gentleman named Howard Ant, who recited his immortal, Sam the Gambler Talks to a Losing Horse. That's long been a favorite of mine. The contemporaneous accounts of the night at the bitter end uh, in the AP and UPI are quite amusing for their description of the scene. Here's a little bit from the AP story, which says that the poetry battle was about a draw. Cassius cringed at the poetic efforts of the Beats. The Beats cringed at the efforts of Cassius. One Cretan with straight black hair and about a pound of black goo on her face, consulted as an authentic beatnik, contended that Cassius's work had soul, but she turned out to be a researcher for a weekly news magazine and was disqualified as a judge. Cassius arrived in the village just as lunch, coleslaw, and chicken wings was being served. That's an important uh, detail to include. A gentleman weighing about 106 
with a fine head of skin and a thriving beard, was the first challenger. His shoes were shined, but his manuscript looked like he had wadded it up and used it for a doorstop. He read The Way of Emblems, or Sam the Gambler talks to a losing horse. Cash has called him about a four-round poet. Finally, a living doll with baby blue eyes and about six hanks of dirty brown hair hanging down her back. If you'd wash her off, she'd be beautiful, one spectator said. Read an ode to Cassius. Do you have a flag in your palm, it began. Actually, Cassius held a copy of his poem in his palm, and soon he got up to read it. It rhymed. It was the turn of the beats to squirm. All right, here is the UPI, which writes, It was at the bitter end that 21-year-old Cassius won by popular acclaim Thursday a self-composed poetry reading contest. The bewhiskered young hippies, in quotes, and their very long-haired, quote, swingin' chick gals, simply dug that Cassius. Not because of his poetry, but, quote, because he's putting the whole world on and it's a gas. Translated, that means Clay knows that if he fights like he writes poetry, he'd lose his next six bouts by knockouts. Cash has won Thursday's poetry contest against seven opponents, six of them girls. Before his recitation, Clay explained to the 200 listeners, the rhythm of my poetry gives me an unprecedented rhythm in the ring. Then he read with a flamboyant vigor, Ode to a Champion, Cassius Marcellus Clay by Cassius M. Clay. His modest poem started, Hail to a man of muscle and brawn, a fighter so stout of heart that shadow boxed and sweated and punched and learned the boxer's art. I like in the New York Times account, one of the sub-headlines is Jones rhymed with bones. <laughs> That's a good subhead. Good subhead. We'd love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. If you like it, leave it a rating, leave it a comment. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. Facebook.com slash hangupandlisten is the URL. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And Zora Folly. And thanks for listening. That was cute. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.